It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Levy. Welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of Daily Thunder. It sure is fun to uh, uh, dive into the fourth episode of of our series. Uh, We have a semester starting tomorrow, so there's a lot of excitement uh, around here for our team and our staff. Uh, We're always uh, thrilled when students start arriving. It's a a neat thing. Uh, So for those of you that have been tracking uh, with uh, the series that I've been on, this is the uh, fourth installment in the series uh, called Defying the Enemy Voices. And this particular one's called The Voice of Fear. Each of these voices that I've been going through, and even to call them voices is somewhat, uh, I don't know if you could say awkward, uh, because I don't want to overplay uh, the idea of a voice, but at the same time, that's exactly what it is. There is a way that the enemy speaks and the way that the enemy suggests things to us, and it's part of the great spiritual battle that that we're in. And to call it a voice, well, that's, that's how it functions. It's not an audible voice, which is why it's a little tricky to know how to describe it. And the other term that I'll oftentimes use for it is operation. In other words, the enemy has a scheme. He has a plan to undermine and to sabotage our souls. And so there's an operation of fear that is literally set up against us on purpose, tactically, to destroy our lives. And the familiarity that many of us in the body of Christ have with anxiety, fretting, foreboding, and fear is uh, quite extensive, and I think it would shock most people that struggle with fear and anxiety to realize how, how many others actually do. It's just in varying ways that we do. For instance, Leslie and I have notated, because I would look at her, and she used to struggle with anxiety, uh, and it was probably the chief challenge that she had in her spiritual development. Here's what's interesting is, it was for me too, but it was completely different. She would oftentimes struggle with health concerns, And so if she had any type of weakness, it would immediately hyperbolize in her mind to be deaf, you know, and some terrible thing was going to happen. And I always thought that was ridiculous. And I was like, oh, come on, that is so ridiculous. And then meanwhile, I was on the financial side. So something would happen, I would immediately go into worst case scenario of what this could mean. And she would look at me like, what's your problem? And so oftentimes, our own anxieties and our challenges and our struggles don't translate to everyone around us, which makes us feel isolated. There's something weird and deranged about us, when in actuality, it's simply the enemy playing us as a fiddle. He understands the instruments of humanity, and he wants to play it against itself. So there's a story in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, and I'm just saying my, my title slide is Hired to Sabotage Nehemiah. It's interesting because Nehemiah is doing an important work. He is doing something that God assigned uh, him to do. He is returning to, after the Babylonian captivity. You see the return of the exiles. You see the reestablishment of the temple. And now we're at the building of the walls to fortify in this city of Jerusalem against its enemies. Huge moment in history. What is taking place is monumental. And the enemies of Israel are not happy about it any more than the devil is happy when we begin to establish walls around our lives so that he cannot get in. And that's exactly what this whole series is on. It's about building walls around our life 
in the most positive sense. In other words, to fortify in the work of Jesus Christ here so the enemy can't get in with his agenda. And so it's interesting, when you study the, the book of Nehemiah, what you see is a parallel with our spiritual life. You see the enemy tactically attempting to dissuade Nehemiah in multiple different ways to actually give up his work. And that's what all of these voices are. They're tactical maneuvers against the soul to actually get us to set down our, uh, our construction devices or our swords and just say, okay, I, I guess this doesn't work. And Nehemiah has a, a near impossible job. He needs to build a wall with enemies trying to stop him. And what's amazing is he actually does it, and he does it supernaturally fast in 52 days. It's an extraordinary uh, event in history. So I just wanted to read this to you just to sort of start out because this is very familiar to me. I am very familiar with this work of the enemy. Nehemiah 6, 10 through 13. Nehemiah speaking. I came to the house of Shemaiah, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. I love this line. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired. What was the reason? Listen, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. So why is the devil moving against us? Well, in a sense... So that we should be afraid and act in the wrong fashion and to flee when we're supposed to stand, to cower when we're supposed to be bold, to be silent when we're supposed to speak, and therefore to not do what we know to do. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Nehemiah knows what he ought to do here. And you have Shemaiah who's literally hired by Sanballat and Tobiah to actually counter that work. And what is the bait? Anxiety, fear, fretting, foreboding. Look what's going to happen to you if you don't do something, if you don't preserve yourself, if you don't take care of you. So this is the scripture that I've been giving with each one of these messages. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So we are to be watchful. We are to be clear-minded. We are to be sharp and understanding in this battle. I remember Paul says, we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. And then I always think, you know, whenever I read that, it's like, who's he talking to? Because we are ignorant today. You know, we are, I, I think the better way of saying it is we are not supposed to be ignorant of the enemy's devices. Back, obviously, in the first century church that he's talking to, they were well-groomed in understanding the enemy's plans and schemes. So stand up against it. Be sober, be vigilant, be watchful, because you have an adversary who is uh, seeking to devour. And so you must do something. You must resist. You cannot be passive in this battle. And this is the same battle for all of us that are in the church of Jesus Christ. So in this series, I've gone through four voices. There could have been a huge list in this, but I had four slots to put this series in, so we made it four voices. The voice of despair, the voice of diminishment, the voice of pride, which is the one I gave on Wednesday, and then the voice of fear, and which is today. 
my familiarity with this subject, I wish I could skip this screen and just say, I have never struggled with this, but I'm concerned that you are. For me, I'm very, very familiar with this battle plan of the enemy. So uh, I struggled with this. Uh, it was a high degree of anxiety. Uh, it started about 25 years ago when we were uh, actually moving from Michigan to Colorado. And uh, I mean, it's su such a ridiculous story. Uh, but I remember I was so stressed out this one day. And we were trying to pack up our rider truck to move. And I had we, ha we had had our stuff spread around because we were newly married and we didn't have enough room in our condo, so we had this guy's garage, this guy's attic, this guy's basement, and then we'd, s we'd sort of strewn our stuff around. And so I needed to go from one place to the next, but I had to stack things on top of other things that are not supposed to be stacked. You know, there's my china on the bottom type of thing, and then I stick my, grand my baby grand piano on top of that. It wasn't as bad as that, but that's the way it felt in my soul. So I was agitated the whole day, and I was just sort of grumpy and in a bad mood and short-fused because it was stressful. It was a very, very difficult day. And finally, I remember closing the door to the rider truck, and I had spent, you know, I only had a few bucks even to get gas to get all the way back, and I had to spend like $12 on one of those locks. And, I mean, even that was stressful because it's like it's almost all the money I have, and I'm spending it on a lock to just lock the rider truck. And so the whole day was, you know, Grumpy'sville. And so finally I get the rider truck closed, locked. I sort of lean up against it and go, oh, boy, 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 today was miserable. You know, one of those types of attitudes where you're just sort of nursing your own frustrations. And then I come into our little condo, and if my eyes had been a, uh, a, a camera, uh, it would have been like a zoom lens that went through the house all the way to the back patio, and there was my grill and I had forgotten to pack my grill. And for whatever reason, not packing my grill began a series of events in my life that nearly killed me, and that's not an exaggeration. I nearly died from anxiety. I ended up in the hospital because of chest pains, intense, I couldn't breathe. And you know, it all starts here, right here, where the devil sort of comes out and goes, you know what, you deserve to give way to anxiety. This is just too much for a man. People can't handle things like this. So, and he's like, he had a, a steak dinner in front of me, and he handed me the fork and the knife. He's just like, just cut yourself a piece. It's okay. Okay, it's situations like this deserve giving in. And so he just said, just sign right here. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know that I was agreeing to something, but I was agreeing to be influenced by something, by this operation of anxiety. And from that point forward, I struggled intensely with anxiety. What's weird is I never struggled with anxiety before that day. And so I can mark it in my life, but it was a significant thing. So I, at the age of 28, I'm going to skip over a lot. I have a whole message called We Will Not Fear, if you want to go and listen to that, which goes into great uh, dimension into this. But at the age of 28, I was diagnosed with a stress disorder. I mean, how embarrassing is that? Could you imagine Jesus going into the hospital and saying, uh, Doc, what do I have? He's like, you have a stress disorder. You're not handling your difficulties very well. And so I couldn't imagine Jesus having the same problem, but I could not handle difficulty. So it was, even if it was a small one, I, I, I couldn't breathe. And it was just pathetic, okay? That's all, I'm just going to call it what it was. You know, I'm 49 now. I'm really glad I have some years between me and this story because like, oh yeah, way, way back then. But it was, it was humiliating back then because I recognized that I could not handle leadership. I could not handle difficulty. I was not built for challenge. And the enemy knew it. He was playing me like a fiddle. 
And so at the age of 49, I don't struggle with anxiety like I did back then. And something transformed in my life to set me free from that bondage, from that operation. And that's, I'm not going to be able to go through it in great detail, but the reason I'm bringing it up is basically saying, I understand this voice. I understand its agenda. I understand its impact. And I understand what it can do to a life when we become submissive to it. So the operation of fear, what is its goal? Now, I oversimplified this in my conclusion, okay? And I'm, I'm saying to quench faith. When fear is allowed in, what happens is it counters the work of faith in the life because faith is basically fearlessness. Faith is to look at any situation and say, God is greater. And if you know God's greater, well, then you don't fear it. So when you allow anxiety and fear, what you're actually doing is you're allowing the devil to like pour a big bucket of water on the roaring fire of your faith. And so as a result, it's important to keep that bucket out of your fireplace in your soul. God wants you to have a burning faith, to have a confidence that he is able, he will do it, watch what my God will do, and the enemy comes in and he tries to douse it. And that's why it's critical for us to know what is going on and to keep the devil's bucket away from our fire. When I think about what fear anxiety is, and you notice I'm giving multiple variations, like fretting, foreboding, uh, anxiety, and fear. They're all out of the same family, and they just have different uh, uh, ways that they express themselves, but they're all sort of out of the same mold. They just are a bit different in their attitude. The whisper of doom... Have you ever had it where you're in a situation, something happens that sort of surprises you? It's maybe not good information, and you get the whisper. And it's like this extreme whisper. It, it, it's a prophecy is what I'm going to call it, a false prophecy about your future. Now, God isn't saying it. Who's saying it? Where are you getting this from? It's like, oh, it's going to go really bad. Oh, this is going to be terrible. Where's that coming from? Because that's the advent. That's the beginnings of anxiety and fear right there. It's this whisper, and it's, it begins to project a future outcome that isn't God's outcome for your life. And the question is, are you going to buy it or not? Because when the whisper comes, what you should do is knock it in the teeth and laugh at it and hold it in, to, in contempt. However, we have a tendency, especially if we are familiar with the whisper, to treat it almost as if God's helping us see something. This is how the devil will, will spin it. It's like, hey, you want to be wise. You better think these things through. Some people have been conned into thinking that when they are anxious, they are actually working hard spiritually because they're, they're burdened by it. That's not the burdens that the Holy Spirit gives, though. The Spirit of God does not give fear burden. He gives faith burden. There's a huge difference between the two. So I'm going to give you some, some phrases that might sound familiar to you uh, in your soul because if I said the voice of fear, what does it say? Well, it's, it has a lot of things that it says, okay? So these are just some concepts. It's over. It's over. Sort of like, there's no hope. You might as well give up right now. It's too late. It's too late. You will lose everything. It's like extreme. Fear and anxiety works on extremities, okay? You cannot overcome this. This is too big of a problem, even for God. Certain destruction lies just around the corner. You will have an accident. 
you will catch a fatal disease. See, this is, like, I look at those first two on that list as ridiculous, right? But this is the type of stuff Leslie would struggle with. Leslie would, uh, and I used to say, it's like me looking at that uh, clock on the wall and saying, oh, no, it's going to fly off the wall and hit me. And she goes, no, it's not like that. I go, well, that's what it sounds like to me. I'm not concerned about getting a fatal disease, right? But Leslie, for whatever reason, it was health that was always the anxiety point for her, whereas mine was finances. And she thought mine was ridiculous. I thought hers was ridiculous. And yet they're of the same nature. They just have a different focus point. If you don't do something and do it now, it will be too late. Okay, that's the pressure of anxiety upon a situation. Have you ever seen it where you know, there's some kind of panic? And, and I've, I've actually seen uh, uh, gas stations where people are lined up down the street. Some people in that gas line don't even know why they're in it. But they see everyone else getting gas, and so a panic begins to surge. That's actually what happens when people have a run on the bank. That's what happens when you see the stock market crash. It's actually based on this exact thing. If you don't do something and do it now, it will be too late. So everyone does it, and we're all played like a fiddle. And it can destroy an economic system of a nation in one day. It is, I mean, this is how history has worked. And this is how the individual life can work. In other words, you shouldn't get in that line. Even though the devil's saying, if you don't, bad things are going to happen. You see, he was hired to lie to you to get you to flee and to run and to behave like normal humanity. You're a Christian. Should such a man as I flee, says Nehemiah. Look, don't you know what I'm built for? I'm built as a child of the Most High God. When I act, I act in accordance with his actions. If he's running, if he's screaming, if his head is, you know, uh, you know waving back and forth, going, no, then I better do the same. But if he is sitting in his throne, mocking and holding in derision the enemy and laughing, well, you know, that's where I should be too. Run for your life. Give sway to panic, fear, dread, and trepidation. Here's our quote, Nehemiah 6.11. Should such a man as I flee. And so as a Christian, there's our statement. Hey, look, I'm a Christian. I don't flee. I don't panic. I don't run and get into long gas lines. I don't just sell off everything because I'm afraid of what will happen. I'm not going to be played as a puppet. I am controlled by the Holy Spirit. I do what he asks me to do. And if he says, hold on to your stock, don't worry about the gas, that's what I'm going to do. If he says, get in that long line, that's what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to do it because of anxiety. I'm going to be doing it because I'm probably supposed to minister and share the gospel with the people in the line. In other words, I'm not moved the way the world is moved. The anxious Christian is the impotent Christian. When anxiety rules your life, you immediately lose your zest. You immediately lose your power. You lose your life, you lose your joy. It's impossible to have anxiety and joy simultaneously. The two counteract each other. It's like oil and water. And so as a result, when anxiety is ruling, you find it quenches your fire, your spiritual fire. So therefore, it takes you out of the game. This is why the enemy works so hard to bring it. You must not become the anxious Christian. One of my favorite stories on fearlessness is, uh, I want to say it's a story from Otto Koning. I think it is. Uh, and so you have this, uh, these missionaries, Otto Koning was a missionary to, I think it was called Irian Jaya, or the, uh, 
uh, Indonesian East Indies or Indonesia uh, is what it's called now. And uh, so when he was there, there, were, there was this one situation where these Indonesians were reached with the gospel and they, they became so passionate that they wanted to go and share the gospel and become missionaries. So this one young guy, uh, they, they had sat down with uh, this one church that was a very healthy church. They said this one group is very heavily controlled by uh, the spirits, the evil spirits, and they need a missionary. And so will someone go? And this young, one young man volunteered to go. It's a very dangerous situation. You know, these are headhunters. You know, a lot of them are just are very a dangerous situation, controlled by witch doctors and by fear. Fear is what rules in ignorance. And so when the truth is obscured, then oftentimes evil spirits can rule simply through ignorance. That's, that's what it is. When you have knowledge of truth and knowledge of the cross, evil spirits have no power. We have all these wild turkeys <laughs> right outside our window here, running it through the parking lot. Uh, it's quite the, the sight. It's <coughs> so uh, if in, in this situation, this young man comes into this village and everyone is afraid of the witch doctor, but he's not. And you know, I, I'm even a little intimidated when I think about going to a jungle and taking on a witch doctor. You know, the, it's just sort of mysteriously weird. And so as a result, I don't wanna mess with a witch doctor. This guy wanted to match, mess with a witch doctor. So he basically challenges the witch doctor because he's standing for truth. He's sharing about Jesus and this witch doctor is his great enemy. And this witch doctor is going to put curses on him and all these things. And so this guy, basically calls the bluff of the witch doctor. And the witch doctor had this little bag of witchcraft and he kept it in his dark hut. And in this bag was all sorts of things. There was a rat tail in there, monkey teeth, a fish bone, bat wing, rotten berries and tree bark. And these are like sacred things. And no one has ever, even the witch doctor does not, you know, dig inside and bring it out into the light. I mean, this is like evil stuff. These are where he gets his potions from. And so this guy literally brings out that bag, takes the bag, brings it out into the open. Everyone stands around and is like, <gasps> but he was going to show that the power of God is greater than the power of the witch doctor. So he takes this bag, dumps it out in broad daylight in front of everyone. Everyone's like, oh, he's going to die today, even right now. I mean, they're just like scared to death for the guy. And he says, just to show you the power of God. And he picks up these things. He like even bites onto the, the fish bone and, you know, licks other things. He's like, look, it has no impact on me. Everyone's like watching him all day long through that. He's like, I'm fine. And, in the, and then after that, you know what it, what it said to him? This guy's God is greater than the witch, witch doctor's voodoo, his, his stuff. This is amazing. And it actually gave a strength of witness to this guy. Even as I stare at that story, it's a, it's a great story, and I always, I always love it, but would I be willing to defy the powers of the devil with such confidence? Because when you have faith, you don't have fear. When you have faith, you don't have fear. Key equation in the kingdom of heaven. Fearlessness is what we're built for because we are built for faith. This is very similar to what the guy did, uh, and this is sort of the... Uh, Amplified version of it. I, I love this, all the ways that this, wor this scripture could be expressed. Colossians 2.15, and having spoiled or disarmed principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a show of them or exposed them to disgrace openly or frankly, freely and fearlessly, triumphing over them in it. Boy, it's just like that scene. 
So here's a quote from uh, someone named Darlo Sargent, Reverend Darlo Sargent. Not a few Christians live in a state of unbroken anxiety, and others fret and fume terribly. To be perfectly at peace amid the hurly-burly of daily life is a secret worth knowing. What is the use of worrying? It never made anybody strong, never helped anybody to do God's will, never made a way of escape for anyone out of perplexity. I'm going to read that again. What is the use of worrying? It never made anybody strong, never helped anybody to do God's will, and never made a way of escape for anyone out of perplexity. Well, that sounds like a waste of time, and that's exactly right. The reason we do it is because we forget truth. When you lose sight of truth, anxiety swoops in. It plays upon our ignorance or our lack of understanding. Worry spoils lives which would otherwise be useful and beautiful. Restlessness, anxiety, and care are absolutely forbidden by our Lord who said, take no thought. That is, that is no anxious thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? He does not mean that we are not to take forethought and that our life is to be without plan or method, but that we are not to worry about these things. People know you live in the realm of anxious care by the lines on your face, the tones of your voice, the minor key in your life, and the lack of joy in your spirit. I'm going to read that one again too. People know you live in the realm of anxious care by the lines on your face, the tones of your voice, the minor key in your life, and the lack of joy in your spirit. Scale the heights of life, of a life abandoned to God. Then you will look down on the clouds beneath your feet. That's a good quote. I like it. The case for fearlessness. So to say fearlessness, it's such a strong word, almost like it feels like an exaggerated word, like we shouldn't say it as Christians, to say fearless. It's like, I mean, how about minimized fear or a little anxiety? But you can't be like, fearless or anxietyless. You know that you can't live that way, right? The case for fearlessness, the operation of fear cannot stand up against God's word. So the Richard Wormbrandt strategy, I don't know if you guys have ever uh, studied Richard Wormbrandt on this, but he was a pastor in Romania and it was a pretty dark time that he lived there, okay? So he was there under the Nazi control at the beginning of World War uh, II and then Stalin comes in and ends up taking over uh, Romania, and then it came under communist dictatorship. And he's a Jew, and he's a Christian. So when he's under uh, the Nazi control, he's a Jew, and they want to kill him. Then when he's under Stalin, he's a Christian, and they want to arrest him. And he was arrested. He was thrown into prison, into solitary confinement. And so this guy had reasons to fear. Let's just put it that way. He had reasons, whereas most of us don't really have a good reason. He did at least according to you know, our own mindset, he did. And yet, he, he studied the Bible to find the verses about fear and fearlessness. And so he said there are 366, even one for leap year, verses in the Bible about not fearing. So he memorized every single one of them, and every day of the year, including leap year, he had a verse for it. And what's amazing is it was on leap year, February 29th of whatever year it was, that he was arrested. <laughs> and he had a verse for it. I think that's just an incredible story. But, and 
the way that this man handled his arrest is very different than the way we would, or I shouldn't say it that way, the way we usually would, because I think we should handle it the way he did. But he was unmoved. He was outward in his focus, and they were threatening him because he was prisoner number one. When the communists came in, he was the first one to defy them, and so he became prisoner number one in Romania. Do you imagine? And he, the whole goal of arresting him and torturing him was to turn him so that he would get up publicly and declare that he was wrong. So that's a, that's a rough situation. I mean, in other words, there's a lot of pressure because they're going to turn you. They're going to torture you until you turn. And he says, if I am, a, if, how did he say it? Feel my pulse and you will know that there's a God in heaven by the fact that it does not increase in its rapidity by your threats. Okay, now, is that how we handle the situation? I mean, just stick yourself in that situation, some dark room with a light on your face and men yelling at you, telling they're gonna torture you, they're gonna pull things off your body, they're gonna make you bleed, they're gonna make you feel every bit of pain until you turn, until you deny this Christ. And you say, look, you know, I'm not moved by that. You can pr- I can prove right now that there's a God in heaven by the fact that I am not moved. Just test my pulse, just keep your finger on it, say all that stuff again. And watch. Okay, you follow me? This is, this is something special here. And yet, this is what inspires me. It's like, I want that. That's what I want. Right there. A verse to snub fear every day of the year. All right, see, did you guys hear that rhyme? That was good. That was for you guys. So let's go through a few of those 366. Not very many. I don't know what it is. Maybe eight of them we'll go through, okay? But I'm just going to give you the hints the fragrance of scripture on this topic. The Lord is their light and their salvation, so whom shall they fear? The Lord is the strength of their life, so of whom shall they be afraid? If it really is true that he's the light of our salvation, that he's the strength of our life, well then, what would we fear? Who would we fear? It's irrational to fear. Though a host should encamp against them, their heart shall not fear. Though wars should rise against them, they remain confident in their God. Because God will never leave them or forsake them. And he, will, and he ever lives to make intercession for them. God is their refuge and strength, the very present help in their trouble. Therefore, they will not fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And no weapon that is formed against them shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against them in judgment, God shall condemn. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So that's what, I'm going to call that the Richard Wormbrand approach, where you collect your, your verses on, on fear and just rehearse them over and over and over again to remind yourself that God is in control, he is greater than all these circumstances, and he has asked me to not give way to fear, therefore he will supply me with the grace to do that, to live that way. So here's another approach, it's complementary to the Richard Wormbrand approach, but the more than conquerors approach which is rehearsing the position of the victory of our Christ and our position in victory in him. And so to do that, to recognize that it's not just that we're commanded not to fear. And there's good logic. If I were to go through those verses on fear, you recognize that there's a logic behind fearlessness. And that is, okay, you do know God, right? I'm like, yes, yes. You do know that he's all-powerful, right? Yes, yes. And so if he is your refuge, like in a time of trouble, and you can actually find your refuge in him, would you fear anything that the enemy could do to you if you knew that he was surrounding you as a shield? God, Almighty, the one who 
created the heavens and the earth, the one who also came to this earth, clothed as a man, and defeated the powers of the evil one, I mean, smashed his head, that one. So who would you fear? What would you fear if that was the case? So that's the logic of Scripture on this point. And it flows into this. The more than conquerors approach is based on that logic. All things are underneath the feet of my Redeemer. The Messiah, that's Ephesians 1.22. The Messiah has come and has crushed the head of the serpent and has declared, it is finished, John 19.30. And if God is for me, who can stand against me? That's Romans 8.31. For greater is he who is in me than he who is in this world, 1 John 4.4. 4. My spiritual weaponry is mighty to the pulling down of enemy strongholds, that's 2 Corinthians 10.3-4. If I submit to God, resist the devil, the devil will flee, James 4.7. The shield of faith repels all the fiery darts of the evil one, Ephesians 6.16. 6, he is my refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, Psalm 46.1. For my God surrounds me with favors with his shield, Psalm 5.12. And though a thousand may fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, it will not come near me, Psalm 91.7. No weapon formed against me shall prosper, Isaiah 54.17. I have been given over I have been given power over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt me. Luke 10, 19. My enemies may intend to harm me, but God means all things for good that he may deliver many. Genesis 50, 20. Here's a quote from Letty Kalman as we're approaching the end here. By faith, not appearance. God never wants us to look at our feelings. One of the dangers with anxiety and fear is the feeling that comes in the midst of difficulty. And when we consult our feelings at any juncture, we become vulnerable to the enemy's play. God never wants us to look at our feelings. Self may want us to. Well, we love to evaluate our feelings and nurse them. And Satan may want us to, but God wants us to face facts. <laughs> what an interesting statement. Not feelings. The facts of Christ and of his finished and perfect work for us. So when you are feeling that vulnerability and the enemy is coming in like a flood, face the facts. What are the facts? We've got some good facts in front of us. We've got some good things to spit back. When we face these precious facts and believe them because God says they are facts, God will take care of our feelings. God never gives feeling to enable us to trust him. God never gives feeling to encourage us to trust him. God never gives feeling to show that we have already and utterly trusted him. God gives feeling only when he sees that we trust him, apart from all feeling, resting on his own word and on his own faithfulness to his promise. Isn't that an interesting flow? I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it again, okay? I think it's great. It says, God never gives feeling to enable us to trust him. You ever had that where you're in a dark moment and you're just like, God, could you, could you give me just that joy right now? What he's given us is truth. I know it sounds sort of heartless, you know, that our father's, father in heaven sort of like, tell me the truth. You know the truth, rehearse it right now. Go to the facts. What do you know right now? Because you're believing a lie. You're believing that it's over that you're too far gone, that there's no hope. What are the truths right now? Repeat them. So God never gives feeling to enable us to trust him. God never gives feeling to encourage us to trust him. God never gives feeling to show that we have already and utterly trusted him. God gives feeling only when he sees that we trust him apart from all feeling, resting on his own word and on his own faithfulness to his promise. Then 
feeling comes. The feeling of joy, for instance, comes from the action of joy. I know that sounds strange at first, but when I choose in a dark moment to do what the scripture is saying, God says, rejoice. I'm looking for a feeling oftentimes. Well, God, if I felt like rejoicing, I would rejoice. Instead, I look at the fact that he is conquered. He is victor. He is one. He will turn all that the enemy means for evil into good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I'm rejoicing on those grounds, not because I have feeling. I'm rejoicing because he is victor. And as I do, as I align myself with the truth, then I have the feelings of joy. As opposed to waiting for the feelings of joy before I obey. Or waiting for the feelings of the surge of love before I sacrifice for someone else. In other words, I am moved by God and who he is. The feelings are complementary. They come as a backing to me having faith in his facts. Never until then can the feeling which is from God possibly come. And God will give the feeling in such a measure and at such a time as his love sees best for the individual case. We must choose between facing toward our feelings and facing toward God's facts. Our feelings may be as uncertain as the sea or the shifting sands. God's facts are as certain as the rock of ages, even Christ himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That'd be a good quote to put with our reckoning with truth uh, message, wouldn't it? Oops. So our final scripture is the voice of Joseph. Uh, Joseph had every bit of reason to give way to lowness, to give way to anxieties and fears, and yet he stood faithful, he believed his God, and he's speaking to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me. You see, there was a conspiracy and a plot to destroy Joseph, to silence him, just like there is a conspiracy and a plot to silence you. And as a result, here's how we pull the judo move, as I've been calling it throughout this series, on the enemy. He comes in with his height, his weight, and his girth, and he comes against us with an offensive maneuver to destroy us, to quash us. But in the judo style that we as Christians have been given, we take that and see it converted. All of that weight falls harder because of it. In fact, the bigger he is, the harder he's going to fall if we know how to turn it against him. But as for you... You meant evil against me. As for the devil, he means evil against you. But God means it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. As the enemy moves in against you with anxiety, fretting, foreboding, and fear. As you respond, as God would have you respond, it's amazing, but it doesn't just strengthen you. It makes you a vessel able to strengthen others and give life to others. Boy, that backfired on the devil. That's right. This will backfire on the devil if we learn how to walk in obedience to his word instead of heed our feelings in the midst of life's battles. Feelings are not our guide. His truth is. God has feelings for us. He will supply them, and they are rich, and the feelings of the kingdom of heaven are robust. But we don't wait for those feelings before we obey, before we do what we know to do. We stand firm in the word of God, on truth. We do not let the enemy get us. And in so doing, we are the most joyful, happy, robust people on planet Earth. Father, 
I pray that you would tag the different elements in our life that the devil has been playing us in and that you would bring order, peace, and life to these areas, that you'd bring your word to bear upon it. Lord, there's a spiritual work, and it's also something we're supposed to bind this operation. We're not supposed to just sit by passively, but in the authority of Christ's name, we are to wrestle these things and pin them to the ground. They have no right to harass and to hinder the forward progression of the saints of God. Lord, I pray for a freedom from this vice in our lives that we could live robustly for our King and bring glory to your name. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.